Oh, man. Oh, this is bad. What am I going to do? Hey, Brian, what are you doing in my liquor cabinet? Um, well, Chris, I'm afraid I've fouled up here. I added a little extra kick to one of these liquor bottles, and for the life of me, I can't remember which one. Extra kick? Like what? Hot sauce? Maybe some liquefied vitamin B12 to help avoid hangovers? Um, no. Nitroglycerin. What? And now I can't find it. Boy, is my face red. Are you insane? You're gonna blow up my house! You know what? You're right. Totally my bad. Let's just do beer instead. Sure. Feel like I need one after you scared me like that. <laughs> nice bombshell blonde. Oh, wait. Maybe it wasn't liquor I put it in. Wait, hold on. Bombshell blonde? Chris, don't open that! Monsters, welcome to another explosive edition of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. This is the internet's only Blu-ray DVD review podcast featured on oneofus.net. Definitively. Yeah, you can't prove that there are any others. You can't. The you facts, can't. The facts are the facts, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, Brian Salisbury, master of ceremonies. Oh, wait, no, that's a Tales from the Crypt pun. Apologies, my wires got crossed there. And I am joined by my hetero life mate, Christopher Lawrence Cox. Investigating possibilities out there of the Supernatural and other Blu-ray release shows on oneofus.net. That Good. is my job. That is what I do. So neither one of us are plagiarizing today. That's great. <laughs> nope. Wonderful. <laughs> just to remind you that Digital Noise, like all of our content on oneofus.net, is available on iTunes. Just search one of us in the podcast section. You can also find us on Stitcher.com if you're not much of an iTunes user. You can also become a subscriber to the website, which would be awesome, giving $1 to $25 every month. and you can, uh, Or you can just make a one-time donation. You can cancel at any time. And oh my gosh, the incentive plan is so awesome. And we'll probably actually be announcing that this week. So keep your ears perked up. Yes, make them perky like like Legolas, like a fox's ears. What sound does a fox make? I think it was that one. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not really sure. In, in my house, it makes. See what you did there. I do too. Yeah. So uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast or the website at One of Us Net, and we're on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash One of Us Net. So convenient how the name of the site is also the name of most of our social media stuff. Yeah, you know, we were thinking about calling it all uh, Red Hot Horse XXX. We would have made so much more money. You know, it's funny that I think in retrospect we made a mistake. Well, shit. Anyway, <laughs> we're just going to move on from our failure. And now it's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call... Got mail. Yes, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. And our first question comes from Jose Luis Hernandez, who asks, What has been some of the most ridiculous cameos and or product placements you've seen? I think for me, the record holder still, and nothing else even comes close, is Macy Gray in the first Spider-Man yeah, film. What the fuck was that? That was the most awkward moment. In fact, one of the only things I don't like about the first Raimi Spider-Man, uh, it's so blatant. The movie stops 
dead. And he goes, and now here's Macy Gray. I mean, they don't even just casually show the band. They actually announce who it is on screen. As if you're going to give a shit. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's one of those things that will instantly date a movie yeah. when you put whatever popular singer into that film. Um, I won't go with cameo. I will go with product placement because there is a moment in Transformers in the first one when some beam of theirs turns a Mountain Dew machine into a sentient being that fires cans. It's ridiculous for two reasons. One, it's like Mountain Dew gave you a shit ton of money for that. And two, you ripped it off from Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, ripped it off from Maximum Overdrive. Come on, man. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Uh, special bonus points go to Subway for trying their best to take over every television show that's struggling. Oh, and not only that, but uh, the Red Dawn remake has this whole thing where they're like plundering a Subway because oh. it's the only food they have left. Yeah, they had like a five episode run on this season's community of Subway shit. And then on Chuck, they pretty much took over the last two seasons where it was like, we've got to fight these spies, but first a delicious Subway Jesus, sandwich. Man. <laughs> Contractor, no, I will not bow to any sponsor, says Wayne. Plus, Subway is disgusting. Yes, that's the thing. It's like in Red Dawn, it's like if it was a choice between eating Subway and starving to death in the woods, yeah, I don't know. See, I don't know diet, which way I would lean on that. My diet plan is to have considerably less pizza now, and I'm doing that significantly by never, ever having Subway's new flatbed bread pizza. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm on this really effed up diet right now where I'm only eating salads and water, so now that I think about that, I would eat the shit out of a foot long from Subway just because it's not salad. Well, Okay. Fair yeah. enough. That's forgivable then. You'd eat, at this point, you'd eat beans on toast. Oh my god, that sounds so good. <laughs> anyway, next question before I chew my arm off. Uh, from our old friend Ryan Timothy Brace, who asks, with a movie being made uh, about the making of The Room, what other films should be made about the making of a movie? Okay, see, now I didn't know about this. Is this a narrative film? Yeah. Okay, and in that case, the answer is obviously Apocalypse Now. Yes, that was actually I mean, going to be my answer, too. <laughs> that, that is the answer, because that is the craziest, most insane, out-of-control production of a film probably ever made. Yeah. There's a documentary about it, which is wonderful, by the way. If you get a chance to see Hearts of Darkness, uh, you can – If it, some of the more recent releases of Apocalypse Now and Apocalypse Now Redux come with it, packaged with it, or you can just get it separately. But either way, that would be a big one. Um, I certainly, obviously, secondary points go to The Shining, because sure. that was a very troubled set, to sure. say the least. Uh, but if you were going to take a making of a movie and make another very fictional movie around the making of the movie, I would pick Poltergeist. Yeah, it's, man, you're taking all of my options. Yeah, because <laughs> that's, I was going to say that, because it'd be interesting to see a movie with the balls to kind of put that forth in the public, like, how much did Spielberg direct? How much did Toby Hooper direct? And, and make a movie that kind of at least supposes one way or the other. I would like to see even more so than that one that plays on the whole Poltergeist curse effect and makes a horror movie about the making of Poltergeist. Yeah. Where the teenage daughter is the, ends up being the actress who plays her is the main character of the movie as she's trying to survive and then to save the life of the other members, she has to give her own life at the end. Shit, man. That's, you could make an, you're right, you can make an entire movie out of just what happened to those kids after Poltergeist. Yeah. Or, make a movie about the making of Psycho. Yeah, I know they made Hitchcock. I want a movie about the making of Psycho, not about some fake affair that his wife never almost had. Like, yeah. no, make an actual movie about the making of Psycho, because just getting, like, just the lead up to that movie and the things that, the other movies he tried to get that got, you know, kind of, the rights getting stolen away from him by foreign directors, so him doing Psycho instead. Like, that story is one I want to, I want to, you know, see a movie about. Along those lines, I'd kind of like to see something about towards the end of the co filmmaking career of Orson Welles, when he was being forced more and more into do, like, 
productions that wouldn't get finished or would just get started and then get cut down. And then the few things he did do were largely ignored, like F for Fake, which has a huge amount of, like, apparently backstory going on around the making of that thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would be very fascinated to see that story. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your questions, guys. Uh, We will go ahead and slam the lid shut on the letterbox for (laughs) another week. Wa-bam! And move on to the reviews. And reminding you yet again that everything we talk about, there will be an image here on the post on oneofus.net. If you click on that image and go to Amazon, even if you don't buy that item, as long as you get to Amazon via that link, anything you buy benefits the site. And we really do appreciate it. So please keep doing that. We do. In fact, every time you click on one of those, I actually almost stay up all night just thinking about how wonderful you are. I have trouble going to sleep. Yeah, I don't sleep much. I'm suffused with warmth. I like that. I think that should be our next shirt logo. <laughs> There's a picture of me in bed with like a little dream image above me of someone clicking on an Amazon picture and looking all joyful. Yeah. <laughs> it's a million dollar idea. <laughs> Anywho, we're going to start. I could get some sleep, though. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start this week with our Criterion, Yeah, which we don't uh, do very often. But we're going to start with the Criterion, which this week is Don Siegel's Riot in Cell Block 11. Yeah, because, you know... Jail movies traditionally, and especially in the black and white era, are more exploitation type films. Sure, they're fun at times, but that's, they weren't known for being like films that people took real seriously. And then came 1954's Riot in Cell Block 11, which was a genuine and honest look, even to the point of using real prisoners, uh, about the difficulties going on with the prison system, overcrowding, poor conditions, abuse. And it was... Pretty big shock to the system when it was released. Yeah. The, um, there is a another movie that this reminded me of a lot, a movie that I really love called uh, Brute Force, which is from 1947. And it's, it's not so much about uh, an overall prison riot as it is um, a rebellion against one particular guard. But it is one of those movies that, you know, that while watching Riot in Cell Block 11, I kept thinking about Brute Force and... And yeah, this is much more of a of a, a movie with a social message, of a movie with a, with a conscience, I guess, about about prison reform. And we would see a lot of these type of movies again later on in the seventies, things like Brubaker, sure, uh, movies about about prison reform became more fashionable by then. Yeah, this was really one of the first, and and very I think surprising to people at the time that it starts off. You're not really rooting for the prisoners at first, but as it goes along. Even though there's a mix of like guys who are trying to be reasonable and guys who are just, who are, there's one guy called Crazy Mike Carney, who is literally, he lives crazy up to his name. Dangerous. Uh, you, you, you don't know what to think. You want these guys to get their way, but you don't want anybody to get hurt. The warden of the prison is actually everything the prisoners are asking for is exactly what he's been trying to get the state to do for years, but they've just, patently ignored them and the whole time the governor and various other people are trying to basically worm their way out of this whole situation uh in a very sketchy sort of but that costs money sort of way why yeah. should we care about and these the, prisoners they're very broadly drawn like stuffed shirt bureaucrats too sure. i really like that about like all of the and the antagonists of the movie you know technically are the people in charge it's the warden it's the governor it's it's you know this committee of people that is kind of sweeping the problem under the rug and every one of them has the same comb over which i found funny <laughs> yeah, they do. and they have like they're just very stuffy like oh well this is uh, do we do the prisoners run the prison or does the prison run the prisoners and blah blah blah, blah. it's just like yeah people are dying maybe you just address the issue a little bit they're talking points to media talking points to get away from you know the core issue that like these are human rights abuses that are going on here 
and to some extent probably still go on, but not to the to the length and extent that it was then. I mean, geez, you think this is bad. You should see things about what was going on in psychiatric institutes back then. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about your human abuses. Yay, America. Uh, but there's a lot of interesting things around this film. I mean, for one, they, it got nominated for a bunch of awards, uh, but it was Sam Peckinpah's first film. Which is interesting. He did not direct it, but he was the the third assistant casting director for Don <laughs> Siegel. And he continued to work with Don Siegel, working up to the point where he became a director all on his own. I did uh, not know he that. worked on Private Hell 36, an Annapolis story, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and Crime on the Streets. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, that's an interesting little bit of trivia here as well. But another thing is, like I said, this was shot on location at Folsom State Prison with real inmates and guards playing the background roles. And there was a lot of tension, not just because of that, but because Leo Gordon, who played Crazy Mike Carney, who is an intimidatingly huge motherfucker, apparently was really pretty crazy and was a ex-prisoner himself. And they were so worried about him and his like quick to anger uh, about things that they would not even let him be alone with the other prisoners. And he was not allowed to do certain scenes by himself. And they had was, to keep him sequestered like Hannibal Lecter. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> that's fucked up maybe man. not to that degree but <laughs> either way this actually it's actually an entertaining film watching it go it's not dull or or dry at all and the ending is going to frustrate the shit out of you no oh question. yeah it's supposed to entirely but it really is a important and very good film criterion of course loads it up with extras not only do you get an illustrated booklet with a film critic and a article by the co-producer and a tribute to don siegel by sam peckinpah which is cool enough but there's commentaries uh there's audio excerpts from uh, the radio documentary The Challenge of Our Prisons that aired in 1953, which are basically kind of the, the kind of the, the one of the things that inspired the making of this film. There's excerpts from uh, Don Siegel, director, uh, which are read by Don Siegel's son, where, where he reads the chapter about riot on in Cell Block 11. Yeah, he's reading from the director's biography. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, uh, there's another chapter that's being read out by by somebody else. Which, once again, hats off to Criterion for tracking all this stuff down. Oh, yeah. It can't be easy. I don't imagine – I don't even know where you would start to find the the radio excerpts. Like, that's, that's crazy to me. But I, I will have to disagree with you a little bit. I did find the movie to be a little bit dry. In fact, that was the, the word that I kept coming back to the whole time I was watching it. However, I will say that there is some really creative camera work going on in this film, which is something I didn't expect – as it as it got rolling, I was like, okay, I kind of see where this is going. It's one of those very socially conscious movies that's really – that's what its main focus is. But then all of a sudden, it does throw some really creative and artistic cinematography uh, at you. Like there's this one great shot sort of down a, down a hallway in the prison, and all of a sudden this inmate – jumps down from a, an upper level and just the framing of the shot and where he lands it's it's spectacular and it's it's a beautiful like and that happens all the way through the movie that i think compensates for any moments of of drag i i would be really this is a film that i think would be deserving of a modern day remake in the sense of like making it where like we're gonna remake this movie follow basically the same lines except we are really going to make it about the problems with the prisons today sure there's most certainly still are some some significant problems and that would be that'd be something i'd welcome seeing at this point but uh don siegel was an important director he made uh dirty harry escape from alcatraz the shootist invasion of the body snatchers is mentioned earlier and this the killers. is the, film, the killers and this is a film that's that that should be just as prominently mentioned as those if for no other reason that it was considered to be a very challenging and important film at the time it was released absolutely and it's highest of recommendations from the digital noise crew moving on we're going to talk about seven warriors okay now 
this shouldn't surprise you that there's yet another remake of the Seven Samurai that you had not thought of yet. A <laughs> big shocker. Uh, there's obviously been no end of remakes of this film. I don't see Mike's name on this anywhere. <laughs> oh, this came out in 1989. What? This is actually a previous film that was directed by Terry Tong in the Shaw Brothers studio. And it was an attempt to make a sort of more very in that that period in the late 80s when they were you know hong kong was taking over action films they were trying to hong kong actionize the seven samurai story and it's a not a terrible idea if it just wasn't such a terrible movie <laughs> it like in terms of plot it's just barely sketching along the bones of the story it really is just trying to get from like one brief action scene to the next and the action scenes such as they are, are fun there's a certain degree of like you don't have the quality of someone like Ringo Lamb or somebody like that who came a little bit later uh doing these things where they put more thought into the foley and stuff because every sword strike sounds exactly like every other sword strike and every punch sounds exactly like every other punch. And it seems it's very dated in that sense. But these are incredibly talented performers. Uh It even starts with a early sequence with Sammo Hung, who like right in the beginning, like, oh, Sammo Hung's in this movie? Who's like amazing, if nothing else, that he's as fast as Jackie Chan, but weighs three times as much as he does. That is true. Uh And so you're like, wow, Sammo Hung, and he's being a badass, and then they kill him. Aww. Like, And this is five minutes in the film. I was like, well, fuck. Fuck this movie. <laughs> uh, but it actually... They Samuel hung him out to dry. Oh. Um, ah. uh, there's actually almost everyone in this film, if you're a fan of like 80s uh, Hong Kong action movies, you'll recognize them all, even though most of them went on to play largely villains in their career. There's a lot of people like Max Mock, Jackie Chung, uh, Adam Cheng, people who you're like, oh, yeah, that guy, I remember him. He was the villain in Da Da Da. Uh, but the biggest <laughs> name in here is actually Tony Leung Chu Wai, who, of course, is like one of the most famous and recognizable actors in Hong Kong cinema even today. And this was a very early film form. In fact, I had to pause it <laughs> and go, is that Tony Leung? <laughs> uh, who's playing very much a comedy, comic relief character in here. But Almost everyone in here, almost the entire cast went on to work extensively with Wong Kar Wai on any number of art films, including Tony Leung, which is interesting. I don't think there's a direct connotation so much as these were up-and-coming, bigger-name actors in the Hong Kong scene at the same time Wong Kar Wai was start getting started. But it's just – the problem is, like the, like I said, the action scenes are okay. There's some fun stuff in here, but ultimately it's just kind of dull. It's nothing you haven't seen before, and it's the l most lesser version – of the, of those. <laughs> so the least version. The, yeah. Well, yeah. The least version. <laughs> the least good version of the Seven Samurai. I, I have personally yet to see that I'm aware, uh, aware of. And it, it wasn't, it's one of those, I'm kind of surprised of all the movies from this period that haven't come out on Blu-ray yet. This is the one that they put out. <laughs> it's like this very lesser film. I was a big fan of this era and even I had never seen this one. <laughs> I was like, okay. Yeah, it's, uh, I hate to say it because I, I love, I like to be the guy who just recommends the, the good stuff from this era, which there's too few of that are available now on Blu-ray to see or fixed up at all, but this is not a very good movie. Oh, that is too bad. I guess we'll have to watch any of the other innumerable Seven Samurai yeah, takeoffs. Or just the Seven Samurai. Or just the Seven Samurai. Should make one called the Seventh Samurai. In the Seventh Sam, Seventh, Seven Samurai remake. The Seventh Samurai's Seventh Sword Got Sick. Wait a minute, now we're just doing tongue twisters, <laughs> or math problems, I'm not really sure. The seventh seal of the seventh samurai sign. Oh, seven samurai meets seven seal would be interesting. Yeah, or the, the seventh sign. Oh, yeah, now, now I've completely lost the thread of what we were talking about. <laughs> or just seven. Seven, there you go, <laughs> done, easy enough. Seven deadly samurai. 
Moving on from there, we're going to talk about wrong cops. What? Wrong cops. So you mean cops? You could just call it that, right? Well, Martin's not here, so. <laughs> <laughs> this is the latest from Quentin Dupuis, I believe is how I pronounce his last Excuse name. Excuse you. Right? The, the director of Rubber and Wrong. So this is sort of a direct follow-up to Wrong. Um, but is it a sequel? It, no, there's nothing really that connects, or at least that I could tell, because this movie is a mishmash of bizarre black comedy sketches that are kind of thrown together into uh, a loose narrative. Uh, I'm just going to say this off the bat. It's fucking terrible. Wow. I was really looking forward to this because I liked Wrong so much. Yeah, didn't you like Rubber, too? I did like Rubber. And the thing is, man, this movie doesn't try to match any of the subtext, I guess, of Wrong. It doesn't try to have anything going on under the surface other than... And it's not even the same type of absurdity. Like, there's absurd humor all the way through Rubber, all the way through Wrong. That's what Quentin does. But in this movie, it's just more like gross-out humor and rude humor and going for that awkward... I'll give you a great example. Um, Eric is in this, of Tim and Eric. So that should give you uh, a sense of of exactly what type of movie. These are two people I do not want to see. They're the opposite of comedy. Yeah. I'm sorry. Tim and Eric are... And you guys can hate on me all you want for this. Tim and Eric are the opposite of comedy. I'm I'm with you 100%. I have no idea why so many people seem to want to work with them because I find them not only unfunny, but just offensive to the nature of making comedy. They put on... They're like like Johnny Depp. They put on funny hats and then they stand in in front of a camera and just make noise until people give them money. Oh, look, it's poop. Yeah. (laughs) And they'll just... It's like, hey, we've made an entire career out of looking like pedophiles. Congratulations. Like, I'm I'm happy for you. I feel like it's... combination of that and watching too many Japanese like music videos from the like late 80s early 90s uh, w- which make no sense and are just filled with like what the fuck was that yeah it's like okay you're not I'm just not impressed and but the thing is they both deal with absurdism with Quentin Depew who's very much historically been dealing with absurdism surrealism what have you uh, and I just I like generally how Quentin has done it I mean I, I really find something valuable in his films Whereas Tim and Eric's just feel hollow and empty. Yeah. I hate to think that these two people find that they have something in common and start teaming up. I got to tell you, it feels a lot more like Tim and Eric wrote this movie than Quentin did. Like, uh, it, it is every bit that horrible, nothing comedy that those two guys do. And the plot, such as it is, if you can even call it that, is that they're trying to get rid of this. There's this group of cops that are just awful people that are trying to get rid of a body. Some One of them accidentally killed this guy, and they're trying to get rid of the body before it burns them all. It's got a really interesting cast outside of Eric Warheim. Like, it's got Ray Wise. Uh, it's got... Uh, Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson in a very bizarre, like, nebbish-type homeless guy role that's just really weird. But I, I kind of was like, okay, that's interesting at least. Uh, and then Eric Roberts shows up, and there's a couple of comedians that you'll recognize. But it just, it goes nowhere. It just goes through these these motions of like oh we're going to do this cuz it's funny we're going to do this joke over and over again we're it's just it doesn't even feel as intelligent as wrong or as rubber i mean you can you can not like those movies fine but you can't say that there's anything stupid about them like they're they're smart comedies whereas this is just something that you might see on some like late night public access comedy show of like people trying to I don't even. It's, it's it's tough to describe how bad this movie is. Uh, 
It's it's really awful. Well, uh, I guess this is going to be a badge of dishonor for Quentin. A badge of dishonor, and yeah, I don't really feel like talking about it much more. This is a skip, all the way, unless you're just huge Tim and Eric fans, and then you might enjoy this quite a bit. But otherwise, skip the hell out of this movie. In which case, go seek therapy. <laughs> go, go seek therapy. <laughs> Moving on, we're going to talk about Chances Are. Yeah, you know, we all love our Robert Downey Jr. today. We love Robert Downey Jr. after he got help, after he, like, you know, post-waking up in some dude's bed. After Joel Silver saved his life. Yeah. Uh, He's had an immense career. as Talk about your all-time greatest comebacks for an actor. Because he was in poor straits for a long time, despite having a very promising start as a young adult. I mean, he appeared in no end of, of films early on in his career, most of which have been forgotten about largely because they were, they were kind of, they were products of their time, if you will. Uh, I, I still remember him best as one of the bullies in Weird Science. Weird Science. Which I still can't believe they haven't put out a really nice Blu-ray re-release of. Yeah, but totally. But Chances Are was a 1989 romantic comedy uh, with with Sybil Shepard, who just coming off Moonlighting, which was one of my favorite shows at the time. I can't believe I didn't see this at the time because I loved Sybil, Sybil Shepard so much. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Ryan O'Neill, who was still kind of considered a heartthrob, despite he was getting a little bit up there, he still looked pretty good. And Mary Stuart Masterson, who I always have a warm place in my heart for because of her role as the drummer chick in, uh, was it Some Kind of Wonderful? Oh, John yeah. Hughes film. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I was such a crush on her for so long. <laughs> uh, but Robert Downey Jr., well, we see in the beginning, uh, it's basically a young DA played by Christopher McDonald. It's weird seeing Christopher McDonald play a good guy because he always plays assholes. Yeah, Shooter McGavin does I not usually pieces play of good. shit like you for breakfast. He pieces of shit for breakfast. <laughs> um, and he, he's married to Sybil Shepard. They're both very early 20s and they're super ridiculously cloyingly happy with each other. So much so that uh, you're not surprised at all when very shortly after on his way to go have a dinner with her, he gets hit by a car and dies. Finds himself in heaven and they're like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. You can't go back. You're dead. It's like, we can put you in another body though. And, uh, and he's like, okay, well, uh, give me a boy. Same area. It's like, well, there's one right now. It's on gate three or whatever. He's like, okay. Takes off. Like, wait, we have to give you the shot. So you lose your memories. They don't give him the shot. You can see where that goes. Flash to 23 years later. And his soul has gone into the body of a very young looking Robert Downey Jr. Who is just graduated from school. Uh, you know, very prestigious top of his class to become a journalist. And, you know, he doesn't remember any of that other life until he finds himself in a, a weird sort of meet cute in its own way with Ryan O'Neill, who was his former soul person's best friend, who's trying to help him get a job at the Washington Post, takes him into his own home, uh, or, or rather takes him into his friend's home, which ends up being the home of Sybil Shepherd, where he used to live with Sybil Shepherd, uh, and her daughter, Mary Stuart Masterson, who we saw previously while he was at school, he had a little brief meet cute with. So she's like, oh, it's that cute guy who helped me out. <laughs> All right. So you're like, okay, this could get awkward because there's clearly sexual tension between him and Mary Stuart Masterson, Masterson who soul wise is his daughter. So, ick. right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's gross. Yeah. But he basically at one point during dinner, suddenly it all comes back to him and he remembers everything about his past life. He remembers it all. And he's like, I'm this person. And he finds himself in a position of having to try and convince Sybil Shepard and Ryan O'Neill. He is indeed the reincarnated soul of this dude. And basically he wants to reinsert himself back into his old life. <laughs> So to speak. <laughs> Meanwhile, the whole time Mary Stuart Masterson's trying to climb into his bed, which is really awkward when you remember that she's your daughter. Ugh. The very, that was such a thing to do then. How back to the future can you get? 
(laughs) (laughs) The thing about this is it's not a laugh out loud funny movie, but it is not a bad film at all. This director, uh, Emil Ardolino, actually had quite a few hits at the time, including Dirty Dancing was a big one for him and Sister Act. Uh, Uh, He was one of the actors or directors of his era very much. And most of these films, like I said, are at least to me, I found to be relatively forgettable. This is too, but it's a, it's a, it's a really solid kind of feel good romantic comedy with a strong performance from Robert Downey Jr. that's not up to the level he is today, but shows you can see where, you know, you can see the early roots of where this guy was coming from and why people really liked him and why he had so much potential. Sybil Shepard is having a ball in this movie and is sexy as hell. I mean, she really, like, talk about your, if you like MILFs, this is a MILF <laughs> film because she, she's hot and she gets near naked a couple times in it. Um, it's fun, but not essential. If you, if you remember fondly this period of time in film and you never got around to seeing this one, I really recommend it. I think you're going to actually like it quite a bit, but it's no masterpiece. And, but the biggest problem is really the Blu-ray is like when you're first watching it, the scenes in the past, they have this sort of soft lit, very, faded Olin Mills feel to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, well, that's what it's supposed to be the past, I guess. So that's how it maybe originally looked. But then it goes to modern day and that doesn't change. You're like, I see. This was not how it was shot. This is them going from not the negative, despite the fact that apparently they have the negative. <laughs> it Everything I've read says there's no way this came from the negative. They got this cheaper source from a, a different copy of this because mm. it really it looks like it's just on television. It doesn't look that good. There's no. That's really just only mildly in the tiniest way better than a previous DVD release of it. So, but this is a probably. I mean, they're not going to re-release a special edition of this anytime soon because it really is a minor footnote of a film. Just mainly interesting. You want to see young, cute Robert Downey Jr. hamming it up. It's a lot of fun for that. Fair enough. Well, chances are you'll enjoy it if you like Robert Downey Jr. And moving on from there, we're going to talk about The Suspect. Or at least I suspect that's what we're going to talk There's about. There's a lot of films with The Suspect or suspecty type things in the title. Suspecty type things. <laughs> like finding information on this was not immediately easy. In fact, there's a, a Korean film that came out not too long ago at all called The Suspect that had a lot of reviews out there. And I was like, no, not the Korean film, goddammit. And then all of a sudden you, you got to Suspect Zero somehow. Yeah, well. This is not good. Uh, this is a little crime drama film that has one of the weirdest twists in it I've seen in a really long time. And I it's th- unexpected, if nothing else. Uh, I think it's going to actually resonate with a lot of people. I really do. Um, it's the, the basic idea here. And like I said, there's multiple twists. And I can't even t- tell you. I mean, this is not going to sound like an interesting film unless I tell you what the first twist is. So I'm going to do that. Be prepared here. Uh, the idea here is there's a guy and he's in, he's been caught by the police. Uh, and he's in jail being interviewed by them, uh, with William Sadler being the, the kindly and mild, just a little tinge of racist small town. Yeah, they really can't make up their minds in this movie about William Sadler because at certain points he's very by the book and upstanding and other points he just does things you're like, that's super dickish. Like, I can't get a beat on you, man. I don't know where you're at. I think that was kind of the point, too, was to create a sort of, like, ethical gray ground for the situation. And just that kind he of seems bipolar. Because they're certain that this guy just robbed a bank in their town. For no other reason that there's it was a black guy who robbed the bank, and there are no black guys who live in that town or anywhere near it. And he's found wandering on... So it's Pflugerville. Yeah, right? <laughs> he's found wandering on the street with a, you know, a, a t-shirt covered with dirt. And they're like, look, you obviously buried the money somewhere. We know it's you. And he spends the whole time going like, like picking apart everything the guy says to him about it being racist or whatever. And 
like, okay, so where's this going? Well, where's it, where it's going as we find out very shortly is this isn't the first time the scenario has been enacted. In fact, this guy and his partner are professors at a college who go around and they set up ahead of time a scenario where they do in fact rob a bank, but they keep the money and one of them let one of them go to jail, make sure that the, all the conversations are recorded uh, while it's going, you know, while they're being interviewed and just try and you know, get a feel for what this sort of small town racism is well, like. Right. Well, they don't actually keep the money. They give it back. Well, that's is, the point is that yeah. like they stand there for a while and then the other guy shows up with the money. Here's the money. We never had any intention on stealing this. This was a college study. Yeah. We contacted the state police first to let them know that this was going to happen. It's literally an important study to understand this. And they put these guys in a position where they're like so incredibly embarrassed <laughs> that they really don't, they don't even know what to do. Yeah. It, and it, there's a lot of interesting play out with that of watching what happens when suddenly that gets turned around on these small town racist cops. But then of course that's not all. There's a lot more going on here than that. Yeah. Uh, I personally found this really interesting, especially for a small indie film like it is. I felt like there was a lot of things that had potential to be really strong up until I thought, again, I thought the actual final twist of the knife, the final kind of reveal was, was quite good and quite unexpected. I think it's a little pedestrian getting there, and I think it's one of those things that you can you can really see some of the low budget edges. And I'm not just talking about limitations because of that budget, but like limitations in hiring. Like the guy doing the music, for example, is just cribbing wholesale entire refrains from the They Live score. Like he's just doing that harmonica thing. He's doing the exact same two notes <laughs> that they do all the way through They Live. And I'm like, every time I heard it, I was like, put on the glasses, put on the glasses. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a decent, you know, for, for the kind of movie that this is, I will say it's odd that there are 25 producers on this movie. Yeah. For a movie that went direct to video. It, well, the thing is, is when this came out, and I expect a lot of those producers may have been like involved to uh, starting at the distribution stage, because when it came out uh, first, when they were shopping it around, there was a lot of interest in this movie. In fact, I'm surprised it didn't get an indie re a theater release because it, it seemed like there was that much interest. And it also starred the main stars, Mecky, which I'm probably saying wrong. Mecky. Uh, Mackay Pfeiffer. Mackay Pfeiffer. <laughs> is that it? Mecky. Mackay. Uh, <laughs> who has been Mackay in, Pfeiffer. who has been in a lot of stuff. Uh, Dawn of the Dead was a big one for him. Eight Mile. Eight Mile. Mm -hmm. He's one of those guys, the moment you see him, you're like, oh, that guy. And he gives a really solid performance, I think, in it. Uh, it's, I think that it's it's a bit, if anything held me back from liking this 100%, it's that it's a really hard sell the their premise that they would be able to do this what you know that like anybody wouldn't just say well i'm that this is bullshit i don't care i'm keeping you in jail for like six months anyway <laughs> you can bring this shit to the supreme court fuck you yeah <laughs> you yeah. still robbed a bank yeah i was gonna say i think there's not. still a precedent for you know locking you up for robbing the bank i mean at best you can say look they're only doing this to really small town cops who and putting them in a position where they're so wildly embarrassed about being you know revealed to be racist douchebags that they just want the whole thing fucking wiped clean and not have it ever in any way go to public notice. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what they're depending on. But I, I did in fact enjoy this. I, I, I had no idea where it was going and, and certainly not the second twist. I did yeah. not see that coming at all. So I'm going to recommend this. And I think that you have a chance to uh, see it for yourself because it is the first of our giveaway. Now, we didn't actually talk about this. Are we giving each one away individually, or do you want to do one giveaway of both titles? No, let's give each one individually. Okay. Okay. 
In that case, I'm going to tell you how to win them at the end of the show because now I have to rethink my giveaway strategy. Oh, sorry, I thought I thought that's what we were saying. My apologies. This is me crumbling things up and throwing crinkle, them away. Crinkle, 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 crinkle. Sorry, I'm not going to go back and add sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Uh, we're going to we'll get to the giveaways in just a second, but uh, first we're going to talk about Betty Page reveals all. That sounds kinky. Well, you know, I mean, assuming you're a fan of beautiful woman getting naked extensively, I mean, it's okay. No, of course I am. I don't Give me a break. Know you. <laughs> <laughs> Betty Page, of course, if you don't know, was probably no, not even probably. She is the most famous pinup model of all time. Both for regular, very sweet girl, you know, country girl type pinups. Like, oh, look at her. She's she's getting naked or she's half naked, but she still has this air of innocence and fun about her. And then a little bit later, doing being one of the first major like S and M. Type ones say to, you know, with her spanking girls and being spanked and being in full bondage. Yeah. I mean, and it's one of those, like, I, I remember when I first heard about this, not this movie, but her going, who gives a shit? This is like decades ago. Do people really care about this model that was like, like what just did some, some glamour shots this long ago? Why is she so important? Well, I'm probably not alone in wondering that. I know there are other people who are still like, I, I don't really get what the, I mean, she's beautiful. Yeah. But I don't get what the big thing is. Betty Page reveals all. Reveals all. <laughs> uh, and they do a really good job with it. Directed by Mark Morey, it's narrated with a lot of interviews with a very elderly Betty Page herself, who only died a few years back, uh, including uh, other people who she knew in her life, Hugh Hefner, people like Mamie Van Doren. A lot of models have commentary on here, people she worked with, photographers. And it paints a picture of her as a whole person, not just her career, which is one of the things I found most interesting about this. There's a uncomfortableness to the uncomfortableness to the early part of this where she is just blankly with no emotion in her voice really at all telling you about times when she was gang raped and shit like that. And you're like, it's like, oh, yeah. And so the next day I went off and did a photography shoot. And you're like, wait, what? Hold yeah. on. Go back to the part where you were gang raped. Was there not like years of therapy afterwards or something? Jesus. She had a pretty hard life. She came from kind of crazy parents who largely abandoned her. Uh, and she was so beloved by everyone she worked with. I mean, she was known as being the most friendly, the most professional, uh, the most easygoing. Photographers loved to work with her, including one of, uh, one of, uh, our friends, Rick Claw, who's a local critic. His grandfather, uh, uh, I think Ivan Claw, I think is his name. I'm forgetting, uh, was Dr. Claw. Dr. Claw. <laughs> the Claw! <laughs> uh, was one of the main photographers of her, really got some of her, her most famous photo shoots out. And this film not only focuses on, you know, like the, the human side of her, but it spends a lot of time, of course, just showing, like, here's a lot of the most famous shoots. Here's what happened on those shoots. <laughs> and I admit that as somebody who's just, I can't, I'm not a person who can get obsessive about this sort of thing the way some can. I found those parts a little bit dull. You're like, we can only see so many naked pictures of the same chick before we start to go, okay, I get it. She's beautiful. <laughs> wow, desensitize that quickly. Well, it's, you know, it's a full movie. There's a point you're like, okay, yes, we get it. Go back to the parts where she, we're talking to Betty Page, who's actually kind of a fascinating person. And she had a, you know, I mean, she reached that point in her career where she's like, I, I'm getting too old for this. I don't want to be that embarrassing old lady who's still taking pictures because I have a cult following and intentionally went into obscurity, found Jesus Christ, became sort of a proselytizer for a while. She actually helped 
was one of those people handing out Billy Graham pamphlets at the airport. At oh, one good point. lord! But she was never like an asshole about about things. Well, that's good. Things are different now than they were then. In fact, even during this thing, she's like, "Look, I don't have any regrets about doing all this. I think it's great that people love this stuff. I I really don't find anything offensive about these at all, and I think that's." pretty cool and healthy she's just like look i want people to remember me who i was then she hasn't allowed herself to be photographed since you know even these interviews i think were done remotely she won't come and see anyone or do it she wouldn't come and see anyone or do appearances anywhere um and yeah she's an interesting nice person there's a lot of stuff in here that's kind of oh that's a little creepy <laughs> points <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's really cool too and it kind of in general you get this sort of idea of like i don't know like it takes away a lot of the mystique of these things to some degree by, by opening it up like this. But in the other way, on the other side, it makes you have a certain amount of appreciation for just the art that went into these things as well. And sure. I did on the whole really enjoy it. It's packed with bonus features. There's a lot of extra stuff on here. It is the defining Betty Page movie, uh, who, of course, if you're a fan of comics and stuff, went on to influence the Rocketeer heavily. Uh, the creator of the Rocketeer not only cast Basically, his his girlfriend in the comics was Betty Page for all extents and purposes, but went on and helped her in her elderly years with getting – would drive her to doctor's appointments and stuff. Was like – became a personal friend. Right. Um, and many other people. I mean, like just – I'm looking at my Blade Runner poster on the wall. Where do you think the look for Sean Young came from in that movie? Betty Page. <laughs> yep. She was definitely a trendsetter for sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, even if you don't think you're that interested in, in Betty Page, this will be an educational thing about the degree to which she influenced modern culture and fashion in a way that's actually pretty fun. It's funny you mentioned that, and all I can think about is the fact that, uh, the girlfriend of the Rocketeer in the comics was named Betty, and they changed her name to Jenny in the movie, yeah. because Jennifer Connelly couldn't keep track of being called someone else's name. Um, <laughs> that's that true. That's the story that I heard is they had to change it because Jennifer Connelly kept, she was very, she was still early in her career. She was pretty young and she couldn't like keep it straight. People calling her by a different name. So like, let's just call her Jenny. Will they, that help? They also did not go out of their way to make her look like Betty Page in the movie, which I thought was an odd decision to make. Yeah. I was like, really? You're not even going to give her the bob cut? Okay. Still, The Rocketeer is an amazing film. Anyway, not the bob point cut, is. But bangs, that's what yeah, I was yeah. trying to say. Yeah. Uh, we're going to move on, and I'm really excited to talk about what I imagine is going to be our pick, pick of, the of the week, and that is Sorcerer, which is uh, just hitting Blu-ray for the first time, courtesy of Warner Brothers. Yeah, after a long battle. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's several different cuts, different, you know, yeah, the, it, it's a long, ongoing uh, battle between the studio and director William Friedkin, yeah. who you might remember from a little film called The Exorcist. Oh, I love the exorcist. The exorcist. You can have your ex-girlfriend or a cyst developing on your lung. You know, Which would you like? This this challenge has been presented to me before. <laughs> you know, the thing about this movie, a lot of people haven't heard of it. It didn't leave much of a mark in history when it came out because it had the unfortunate release date as another movie that kind of dominated the uh, headlines. And that movie was Star Wars A New Hope. Uh, in fact, many critics going back and looking at this film have decided this is really, this is the demarcation point between New Hollywood, which is what they called, you know, the cinema of the 70s, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the Martin Scorsese and stuff like that, and blockbuster Hollywood. That's that point where everything changed. Right. Um, and you can see that just that weekend, <laughs> the split. The opening weekend of Star Wars, it made a little bit of money. It was fine. But then that second weekend is when it went wide. 
And that's when Sorcerer hit, and Sorcerer just got completely subsumed by the overall craze. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the studio was also very uncomfortable with this film. Uh, They didn't get any big stars for it Uh, at the time. The lead was not considered to be a big star. Uh, Which is bullshit. Well, he wasn't at the time. I know, but it's Roy Scheider played the the lead role, and they originally wanted Steve McQueen and a whole cast of other people, and they couldn't get any of them. They couldn't get Steve McQueen because Steve McQueen was like, you also have to find a role for my wife, which was kind of his edict at the time. Anytime he got hired, you have to find a role for Ali McGraw. Not really any checks in this movie. Yeah, so it was like, (laughs) we can't really do that, so he left the project. But uh, this is, and it's also, I mean, this isn't a mass audience pleasing film. It's an existential thriller. I mean, it's a very deep thoughtful movie that's hard to watch at points, incredibly tense, and is filled with only anti-heroes. True. That being said, it for those things, it does not about as good as you're going to do. It's it's a brilliant film. Now, you guys, if you haven't seen um, the Clouseau film Wages of Fear, the uh, the black and white French film that this is based on, mm-hmm. definitely check that out because that is, that is a great film. And that, that's coming from someone who... <laughs> traditionally is not a big fan of French cinema. No, you are not. But there are two directors, two French directors, who when I hear their name, I will see anything that they've done. One is Jean-Pierre Melville, and the other is Clouseau. So definitely, definitely check out the original, because it will help you appreciate some of the things that Friedkin did differently in this movie. I like best with Clouseau, that part where he's like, is that a BIM? A, uh, a what? A BIM. Oh, for God's sake. That's awesome, right? Yeah, no, that's that's... Ugh. Anyway, so it, so Wages of Fear to Sorcerer, one of the biggest differences is you really delve into the background. I mean, the basic story here is you have these four guys who are living in South America in deplorable conditions, desperate for money. Uh, they're, they're basically day laborers doing whatever they can to survive. And they come across this job. Uh, it's very high reward, but extremely high risk, transporting old boxes of dynamite uh, to an oil fire so that the dynamite can be used to put out the oil fire. Now, if you remember the early episode of Lost, you know that old dynamite tends to leak nitroglycerin and, and be very dangerous really to handle. Really unstable. Super unstable. So this is basically a suicide mission. If they can yeah. possibly pull it off, you know, they'll be well rewarded. But this is... Yeah. This is like... The, man, This is these are guys at the end of their rope. Literally, their reward is going to be that they're going to... Uh, Get enough money to leave. <laughs> there, well, there was like either citizenship or passports. It was something basically like... Not only would they get money, but they would like get their political issues cleared up so they could yeah. leave. Because they're all like people who did some pretty shady, shitty stuff and where they came from, and they can't go back. Right. Some of them are being hunted by people. I mean, they are in the shittiest place in the world, and after being there for a while, like, this is not going to work. Yeah, and that is <laughs> that is why this movie is – that's the, the big difference between this movie and the original is that this movie takes the time to show you where they each came from kind of give you an idea of the, their backgrounds and the circumstances that led to them being exiled to this place, which really gives this South American town where they all are sort of a purgatory sense, a purgatory yeah. feel to it, because they're all trapped there for their sins. Yeah. And you get to you get intimate with what those sins are. Yeah, and and find these guys that despite themselves, people who have always been loners, who do not trust other people, are reluctantly put found, find themselves in a scenario where they have to work together and 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 actually trust somebody and even start caring about each other to some extent. This film 
is most notable, though, for what was on the original poster, which was a sequence with this truck filled with nitroglycerin in the middle of a storm heading across the... Okay, you remember the rope bridge in Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom? Yes. Yeah, imagine that, but in, like, much worse shape. And a giant fucking truck loaded with nitroglycerin is trying to drive across it. (laughs) All these guys were about to meet Kali in hell, essentially. pretty much. And it is the single most tense scene I've seen in as long as I can remember. It's it's so simple, the construct. Like, like the, the setup for these sequences is so... So organic and simple, but it's like you said, you're going to be twisting in your seat and uncomfortable to watch. It's that tense because you know, at any moment that glycerin is going to go off. May I note, especially here, a special note to Tangerine Dream, the soundtrack here, who usually nine times out of ten do a great score, but this has instantly become one of my favorite scores by them. It's so good. You know, very much influenced by them, Vangelis, but it certain has a certain like, Films that came out a little bit later, like Blade Runner or even some of John Carpenter's scores, if you will. It has kind of that sort of feel to it Mm -hmm. at points. It's really tense. It's really memorable. It's really incredible. Uh, And not only that, but it was written based on them reading a draft of the script. They never even saw the movie. Oh, wow. They wrote that score based on reading the script. That's how fucking good Tangerine Dream is. Yeah. Love them. Uh, this is a great movie that you have probably never even heard of, even though, yes, there are no sorcerers anywhere in this. No, film. there are no actual sorcerers. <laughs> confused in this. people who were in the theater to see Star Wars when it was sold out. It's like, oh, well, let's go see a fantasy film instead. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. But Freakin', so, man. Freakin', it is magic, though. It is magic. He proves to be such a master filmmaker with this. And not that, you know, The Exorcist didn't prove that already. Yeah, that but would, uh, I, no one remembers that film. No, 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 yeah. no. But, you know, what's interesting about Sorcerer is I felt like there were several instances that felt very, very Michael Mann. Like, there's a certain Michael Mann quality to some of the shots. Like, some of the quick zoom in the dark uh, at, at night. Like, I was like, man, this feels very... And especially, like, Michael Mann has this big thing for sympathy for the devil. And that's definitely what you get in this film with oh, these yeah. four guys. And I was just like, man, this... There has to – somebody had to influence the other one. I mean, even though they were both technically working at this time, I'm like, there's a very distinctly Michael Mann quality to this William Friedkin film. And they did a heck of a job fi- fixing it up. It oh, looks yeah. beautiful and brand new. It sounds great. Really, the only thing to complain about here at all is that there's – except for – it's in a digibook, so it's got, you know, a little booklet that's that's hard attached to it, which has, you know, stills and and, and uh, excerpt from Friedkin's memoir, The Friedkin, Friedkin Connection – but that's it. There's no yeah. bonus features at all. And apparently uh, a lot of this had to do with the fact that Warner Brothers was not involved in in this production and had no access to any of the deleted scenes, the dailies, or any of that stuff. That all. should be pointed out. The beginning of this movie, the first card says a Paramount Universal production. This was a joint production between Universal and Paramount, two of the biggest studios in the world. That very rarely happens. And yet Warner Brothers is the company putting out the Blu-ray. Yeah, I don't understand that either, uh, except that maybe that, that Universal just had no interest. It's, uh, it's hard I mean, to say. Um, but this is about as good a, good a release as this we're going to get anytime soon. There's even Friedkin trying to give you something increase. Like there's a little slip-in letter in there that's just his thank you note to the main people who helped him restore this. And thanking fans for their loyalty, what have you, which is really a nice thing just to throw in there. But yeah, disappointed there's no extras, but who cares? This is a phenomenal movie that you've probably never even heard of, much less seen, that suddenly is made available to you, pristine and clean, that you should be seeking out. Yeah. And to bring this full circle in like the the most bitter way possible, I'm so sorry, William Freakin. The day this Blu-ray is to launch, which is today... 
they just announced the cast for Star Wars Episode Seven. <laughs> so once again, he is going to be completely overshadowed by Star Wars, oh, and that well. sucks. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? How does that happen 30 years later? It's, Come on! Maybe they did it on purpose. Although oh. technically this came out last week. No, no, I think it actually, I think it hit today. Does it? Did yeah, it? the 29th, which is today, I believe. 22nd. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. he's had a whole week then. No, it's... <laughs> yeah, it's just like Star Wars. <laughs> it's just, it's exactly like the Star Wars situation. I am so sorry, William Freakin, you poor, poor man. By, by the way, if you guys, you're like, William Freakin, didn't he do something else I know? Yes, recently you heard us talk about Killer Joe and how yep. much we love that. That was a Freakin film. The guy's still making great films. Bug it was a Freakin Freakin. Freakin Freakin. This just make this a freaking freaking waking freaking. I can't even say freakin it. Freaking weekend. Yeah, make it a a freaking freakin weekend, baby. About to have me some fun. Anyway, <laughs> move can. Yeah, <laughs> and even though I didn't get sent a copy of this, no big deal. Not better. Fuck it's that. still my pick of the week. Yeah, me too. Still my pick of the week. Get it. Moving on from there, we're going to talk about the pawnbroker. Now, The Pawn Broker is another one of those films. It's a show on the History Channel, right? No, it is not. That's okay. Pawn Stars. You're All right. Pawn Broker is another one of those films from uh, it's from 1964 that n- never really had the big hit with audiences that I guess you know anybody releases the film hopes for, but it was very critically acclaimed. And you know, this one you can kind of see why audiences wouldn't respond to it. It's uh, Sidney Lumet, who is of course a great director, has released at no end of. Uh, great films with Rod Steiger is pretty much the primary character here playing an old Jewish man who runs a pawn shop. He is the titular pawnbroker who is just been totally broken by his experience in, in during the Holocaust. I mean, he is there. We, we, as we see in flashbacks, he used to have a family. They were all killed by the Nazis. Some of them practically in front of him. Jesus. Uh, as we see along the way, we learn more and more about this guy and he just has no faith in humanity or, or just being, being a human on any level. He's just marking time pretty much at this point. Um, I, and there's a young guy who's kind of a, his assistant working the store who's exactly the opposite. He's full of joie de vivre. He's just constantly jumping around and like, what can I do to help? Teach me the business. I want to know how to do this. He's like a very likable guy, except even he, after a while, starts to get frustrated by this guy's just total coldness, lack of humanity that he seems to have. And the movie goes into this in a way we at first you really you, you don't like the guy at all, but but it's about trying to understand. Mm-hmm. It really is. And it's difficult. It's supposed to be difficult. And it just gets darker and darker as it goes along and leaves you with like the most sort of like, like the end of this is really a just sort of like sit there in shock and go, Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to get like wires to teach myself to smile again. Um, it just pin it back like the Joker's face. Just, just staple it back. I mean, in comparison to something like say Schindler's List, which was like, it, which was con- incredibly accessible by comparison. This is probably in some ways even more honest, even though it's not taking place during the Holocaust, except for brief flashbacks. But the real marker here is Rod Steiger himself, who at the end of his life even said, this is the role I'm most proud of. And when you watch it, you can see why. It's a astonishing, show-stopping performance. But 
it's a hard movie to watch. It's not an, it's not, not fun by any definition of the word. And it will be one of those that you're checking your watch at times. Cause you're like, okay, how long is this going to go on for? Cause it's just depressing and hard. It is the first ever feature film appearance of Morgan Freeman. Well, I've done a lot of movies <laughs> who you I will don't... not notice because he is literally walking by in the background. Just reading scene. things in the background. Cause <laughs> I'm easy reader and that's my name. Uh, I, it's also one of the first American films to feature nudity during the production code era. And they do it in a way that one can't even imagine how shocking it must have been at that time. There's Mm -hmm. a sequence where basically this hooker is, is offering him her, the goods. Right. And he's sitting there and he starts to freak out because he's remembering what happened to his wife during the Holocaust, which I don't even want to say out loud. Uh, and it's an incredibly disturbing sequence that is not sexy at all. But you can see why they let it pass into theaters because it's it it has a lot of it. I mean it's it's definitely art. It doesn't fit that Supreme Court definition of pornography. <laughs> it has artistic merit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's this is a movie. It's hard for me to really recommend unless you're really into. Well, I mean, if you're really a student of cinema hardcore, or you really want to know more about sort of the Jews at post Holocaust. But I can't say it's not a good movie. It's a really good movie, but it is not one I will ever go back and watch again. Understandable. So out of curiosity, Chris, what is your favorite Lumet film? Uh, You know, Lumet is not one of my favorite directors. Mm -hmm. I think he's one of those guys who has made a lot of good movies. Like 12 Angry Men is a great example of one. You're like, wow, that's a terrific movie, which was his first movie. But I find like as his career goes on, it's very hit and miss. I mean, his fail safe was really good. Uh, but, you know, you look at his career, you're like, wow, most of these films you've never heard of because they just didn't have much in the way of legs along mm-hmm. the way. The Anderson tapes, another one. I saw it. It's okay. Murder on the Orient Express. I, you know, I'm not the hugest fan. Death Trap would be my answer. Yeah. I love the hell out of Death Trap. Yeah, Death Trap was really good. But, um, yeah. And, and 12 Angry Men is just one of those great, you know, in, in the annals of cinema, just like a, a a great piece of filmmaking. Um, he had to, he's done a lot of films that feel like they should have been great, like Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, but that, cause they've got these great casts and a good mm-hmm. script, but they just don't quite do it. They just don't quite work. They don't quite become memorable. You know? Still, you guys should watch Death Trap. That's, yeah. that's yes, the only should. reason I asked. No, 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 that's true. I, I'm gonna have to go with 12 Angry Men though for the favorite. That's right a on. great, great movie. That it is. Moving on from there, we're gonna talk about Big Bad Wolves. Uh, from the directors of Rabies, which is a film way back in the day you probably remember us raving about. Yeah, a Fantastic Fest horror film that's very simple, but boy, was it a lot of fun. Yeah, this one isn't simple. They have definitely upped their game in the storytelling department. This is a very complex story. Well, they're going for something a lot more complex with a lot more uh, depth behind it, probably in multiple ways, but one can't help but wonder, because it's hard to interpret what exactly the political reasonings are. And they have been moderately quiet about explaining themselves on that because quite frankly, in my opinion, they started that way and then found that like they just wanted to, the plot to go a certain way. And so fuck the allegory. Could be. Uh, but I, I've watched this twice now. I went back and watched it again because I saw it in Fantastic Fest and went, I didn't really like this except for the, I thought that it was filmed well and I thought the score was amazing. I thought the score is excellent to this film. But I just didn't really like the film, and I thought it ended on a, a real cop-out of an ending. Uh, 
seeing it the second time, I felt exactly the same way. And the reason I watched it again is because so many people raved about this, including Quentin Tarantino, who called it one of his favorite movies of 2013. But before we get into that, the story here is, I mean, as we see at the beginning, is three kids playing hide-and-seek in a really well-filmed sequence. Um, one of them basically hides in this cupboard and old abandoned building, and then when the kids come back for her, she's gone with nothing but a shoe left. Flash to later, and there's some cops who have grabbed this guy who's a suspect and are beating the living shit out of this guy. It's never really revealed why this guy is a suspect. They mentioned in passing something like, oh, someone recognized them. And yeah. There was an eyewitness to saw they were near the place. But it doesn't seem like evidence is of great concern in this particular mm-hmm. situation. Well, no, no, especially considering the guy in question who has done this to these, who is, who is, and this isn't the only girl. They find her body and she's been molested in every, she's been raped in every hole. And you're like going, has anybody ever heard of DNA matching in this day and age? It's kind of like, I'm no, just sure, get the phone book out and beat the suspect I'm until he talks. I'm sure in Israel at that point that they, they have that. <laughs> it's, yeah, Israel uh, now apparently is Chicago in the 30s because yeah. they're just beating the guy with a phone book. Uh, that video goes online because some kid happens to see it and film it and it goes viral. Uh, the cop gets put gets in trouble and he's like, you know what, I, you know, saying, you know what, you need to give me your badge and gun. You're you need to take a break for a while. But he's like, no, this guy is the killer. I know it. And seeks to basically abduct the guy. But he doesn't realize there's another guy trying to abduct the guy as well. The father of the last girl who was killed. And these two guys end up in a sort of reluctant partnership with this guy tied up in their basement as they torture the shit out of him. Trying to get him to confess. Trying to get him to confess for most, to basically say where the heads buried of these girls, because that's the thing. The guy takes the heads and they don't know where the heads are. And, you know, it's a, it is a Jewish thing that you indeed don't bury somebody who's not whole. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, generally speaking, it's ideal in any circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that the other religions are just totally cool with You're it. Like, whatever. We just scatter body parts all over the yeah, place. Yeah, sure. Whatever you want. An ankle there, a well, femur over when there. I was in Tokyo, there's a famous grave of like the head of a samurai. And I was like, what? Is that all they had? No, they have the body. That's buried somewhere else. I'm like, have you ever thought about maybe merging these two things? <laughs> maybe that's why the head site is supposedly haunted by a vengeful ghost because he's like, what the fuck up, assholes? Wait a minute. This is in Japan? Yeah. We're Space is a premium and they're burying people in separate places? I know, right? What the hell? I don't know. But I, you know, I'm through most of the, I, all right, so there's, you know how you are with pets being killed in movies that you yeah. hate it so much it's hard for you to get past that? Mm-hmm. Mine is uh, excessive torture scenes. I, I can, you take it if it's really essential to the plot, but this film is, it wants you to be uncomfortable with it, but it's still a little too gleeful about it. And it goes on and on and on. Like, 70% of this film, they're torturing this guy. Mm-hmm. And I just got to that point. It's like, I don't really care what this guy did. This is just, I can't enjoy this. I can't, I can't find myself. I mean, I know you're not really supposed to be rooting for anyone per se, except for the way the film is trying to trick you in what I thought to be was a very, very cheap fashion. But I don't know, man. I, I could not enjoy this movie with the exception of a sequence where the the guy who's the father of the girl, his dad shows up, and there's a whole sequence of pretty funny back and forth between the two of them in a very sort of Jewish parent sort of way. That's that that's pretty entertaining. Wow. But I don't know what did obviously I didn't care for this film that much, but I know a lot of people did. I'm curious to know what your take is on. I this. did really like it. In fact, uh, I I have the same issue with the ending as you do. Um, but getting there, I think if the movie is gleeful about the torture, it didn't instill any of that glee in me. It it felt like that torture is there for the sole purpose 
of really digging at the moral complexities of of what it basically what it means to have that line in a movie that 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 line that divides good and evil and and you know good guys from bad guys and and I think that's why you have these sort of paradigms of of good men you have like the doting father you have the the law enforcement agent like people who are supposed to be like on paper supposed to be sort of the paradigm of good men and I like what they do to kind of push them to a point where they can't even see the darkness in themselves anymore. And I thought all of that stuff, all of the sort of um, all the philosophical meat of the movie was really interesting. But yeah, I have the same problem with the ending. I feel like the ending's a little bit of a, of a gotcha that I don't really understand. But overall, I really do enjoy the film. And I think it's, it's a further testament to these two guys and what they're capable of. And it makes me really want to see the next movie that they do. I, I, but I'm kind of in that place where it's like I understand all the praise and I understand all of the criticisms equally because it is a very divisive film. Just for me, uh, it it worked. It for you know up until the ending, it it worked on on pretty much every level. And I thought it's yeah, like like you said, it's beautifully shot. Oh yeah, all the way through, it's There's just gorgeous. No question, these guys are talented filmmakers. I just felt like the script got uh, got got away from them, quite mm. frankly. And there is the humor that's in here. It doesn't always work, but some of it works pretty well. Definitely. Um, there's, if you like it, there's a lot of extras on here. There's a 17 minute making of, or 16 minute making of the film. Uh, there is a promotional spot that expands the trailer with interviews. Uh, the original theatrical trailer. I mean, it's a, for a foreign release like this that most people in America have never even heard of. That's a solid little extra parcel of pieces in there. So, I think that despite my own distaste for the, for this movie ultimately, uh, even though I will, like, once again concede that it's very professionally done, um, I, I, I suggest you check this out on your own. You Definitely. might be one of those people who really love the shit out of this movie. Yeah, there's enough merit here. I mean, no matter where you fall, um, there's, there's enough merit to warrant a viewing for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Sweet. Well, that was Big Bad Wolves, and from there, we're going to get to talk about Doctor Who again, as we are so <laughs> often known to do. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, I should yeah, say, yeah. as Chris is so often want to do. Well, see, this was very exciting for me, because if you didn't know, back in, I think it was November of last year, they found in a Nigerian television station a huge quantity of Doctor Who reels, and a lot of these were lost ones that like they didn't have anymore. So there are whole episodes that they're like, well, no one's ever, no one's seen since they originally aired because those, they just don't exist anymore. And this, uh, serial, the web of fear episode 41, basically serial serial 41, uh, is that was the fifth serial of the fifth season with the second doctor, uh, Patrick Troughton. And one of those ones I always wanted to see because the previous series before this, the abominable snowman was one of the ones that, Ended up very much influencing stuff that came much later, even recently. It introduced the character of the Great Intelligence, who later was uh, just recently in episodes appeared in one for the first time since then, because apparently there were some weird rights issues to him. Uh, and this was the second, the sequel series to the Abominable Snowman that basically continued that story. It's also the first appearance of long-running extra character. Colonel Alistar Lethbridge-Stewart, who people mainly rec uh, remember from the third Doctor, John Pertwee, but certainly has had resonance in all throughout the series of Doctor Who and has appeared in many, many episodes. Uh, it's, it's silly in the sense that these Yeti, who are of are not actually Yeti. They're robots being who look like Yeti, I guess. They look more like... They're like Yeti Prime. What, what was the name of the... Uh, 
oh shit, I can't. The, the guy on the Muppets who was just the giant big guy who oh, yeah. like this. Yeah. And like, Carl? Hey guys, wait for me! Like, I was, was that his name? I think it might have been Carl. He, they kind of look like that only with, with glowy eyes and, and not really no discernible mouth a lot of the time. Uh, really cheap looking. They just kind of shuffle along. So you're like, you're not the world's most threatening monsters, but you know, it was the era like the- Sweetums. Sorry. That was the name of the BBC was spending like $10 on an episode of Dr. Who. So what are you going to do? But it makes up a, a fun of Patrick Troughton, uh, episode and only one of these episodes in here were previously available. And now there's only one missing the third one, which sadly they didn't do as they've done with some of the others added, uh, animation, an animated sequence to, uh-huh. to fill it in. Instead, it's just sort of freeze frames with the audio track that they have. So, no, so that's not as good. And also, unlike all the recent releases, there's no extras of any kind here. Um, and that's mainly because I think they just wanted to rush this out. This is something that didn't exist before just, gotcha. just recently. So I understand that. And I was really glad to see it. And I found this a lot more fun than the other recent Patrick Troughton episodes I saw, even though it's all a little too in the same place. It's all in the London Underground. And you're like, can we please go somewhere, anywhere else? <laughs> I'm getting claustrophobic <laughs> just watching this fucking episode. But it it is what it is. Uh, it's Jamie and Victoria play his his uh, uh, companions in this one, who are both Scottish, I believe. And Jamie wears a kilt the whole time, no matter how inconvenient that is. And no matter how, despite the fact they've established that the TARDIS is filled with outfits. <laughs> Even in this episode, they nope, established sticking that. with the, the kill. The girl's like, you know what? I'm going to put on something else. He's like, I don't care if it's London underground in winter. I'm keeping the kilt. <laughs> <laughs> you know those Scottish. <laughs> it, it is what it is. It's, it, it's for definitely. This is one of those ones just for hardcore fans and completist fans. But ultimately, it's a fun episode. Definitely. Sounds fun. I'm going to have to check out the Sweetums Yeti. <laughs> and we're going to end this show on what is going to be our second giveaway. And that is Barefoot, a romantic comedy starring a lot of people you probably have never seen in anything before, and also Treat Williams. Well, now, Evan Rachel Wood, pretty well. Oh, is that Evan actress. Rachel Wood? Evan Rachel Wood. Wow, I didn't even recognize and her. And then Scott Speedman, who is basically the poor man's Bradley Cooper. Yeah, I feel like I recognized his name, but I don't remember any thing i've actually oh shit yes i do yeah. he was in the underworld movies you, you've actually seen him in quite a few things well then you i take back what remember. i said <laughs> i just didn't recognize them by looking at him. he's one of those guys who actually isn't a bad actor at all but has never really managed to break past like kind of low budget or silly films mm-hmm. and going to the next level and i think that's a shame because even in this movie i thought it was proved he's got more there than just being a doofus uh and here he plays He's like the black sheep type guy. The guy, he's got serious gambling and alcohol problems. Uh, he's constantly lying to his rich family. He's a douchebag even for LA. Even Which for is LA. impressive. Uh, but he, he's got guys looking for him, trying to get money at like $35,000 from him. And one of his jobs he's trying to do to like, to just keep alive is working as a janitor at a psychiatric hospital. And right as he's getting there, a new young patient comes in, played by Evan Rachel Wood, who apparently has been raised in complete isolation her whole life. Uh, her mom was kind of crazy and never let her leave the house or talk to anyone at all, was only allowed to watch VH1, which alone would drive someone a little batty, I suspect. You know, uh, but she's a big Daryl Hall and John Oates fan. So there you go. There you go. There's at least that. <laughs> or at least presumably. But he finds himself in a position where he's lying to his parents and he needs this money. And he's like, his brother's getting married. He's like, look, I'm going to come out there to uh, the wedding and ho- the hopes he can talk his dad, who is doesn't trust him at all anymore, to give him the money. 
Uh, and they're like, okay, you, and he's lying. Oh yeah, I have a good job now. I have a good, I have a real girlfriend. We're really getting serious. He's like, okay, you can come to the wedding, but you have to bring her. And he's <laughs> like, well, fuck. And he's asking all the strippers, you know, and they're like, not interested. And finally he's like, you know what? I'm just going to take this, this young girl who just showed up here who has no idea what reality is and go on a road trip with her basically. And it's a little creepy. It is. It's a little, because it's, it's creepy for one reason. If you've seen any number of romantic comedies, you know exactly where this is heading. And the fact that she's not really a manic pixie dream girl so much as she is mentally unstable well, and has sort of the – she has the viewpoint of like a 10-year-old girl. Yeah, I mean in that sense that she is the very definition of na- naive. She doesn't know what anything is. Um, and she's completely trusting and, you know, has no idea what to do. And the first half of this movie is very different than the second half of this movie, where the first half is like, you know, the first quarter is, it's Scott Speedman, his story, what's going on with him. Second quarter, hey, here's the girl, now we're going to the family wedding, and it's a sort of weird being there type thing, where she keeps saying these incredibly naive things, and everyone assumes she's being funny or means something else, and it's like, oh, your girlfriend's wonderful, we love her. And then, of course, it's revealed that, no, what the truth is, and it turns into the second half of this movie, which is a road trip back home with her as he's trying to figure out what to do. I mean, he's in an impossible position. He doesn't want to hurt this girl to get hurt, but he also doesn't want to be responsible for her, while mm-hmm. at the same time reluctantly admitting that her charms and her naivety and her just pure heart – is rubbing off on him that he's been so calloused and corrupt and, and bitter that he hasn't really felt this refreshed by anyone in a long time. And it's a love story in a way. And that's the hardest thing to get past is because once again, this girl is like very young mentally. Yeah. And I mean, for a while it's not a love story in the sense of like romantic love. It's more a love story in the way that like rain man is a love story. It's just like going on that, that basically that, that trip of, uh, of self-discovery and, and of like, this is the perfect, uh, foil, I guess, that he needed somebody who really kind of made him look at himself and realize that he was, he was in a bad place and he was not a very good person. And I think once they bring them up to a similar level in terms of like just basic good, that's when they start investigating the more romantic side of it, which is good because at that point she is also starting to grow to the point that you don't, you don't feel like she is a child anymore. Well, that's uh, one of the the core questions that the film deals with. Is this woman actually like psychologically disturbed or is she really just, just naive because she's never been exposed to the world. And by the time we get to that, that point of the film, you're much less uncomfortable with the concept of these two possibly hooking up together. I, a lot of critics really didn't like this film, although all of them kept tossing around Manic Pixie Dream Girl so much. I was like, guys, it's just trendy to be angry at any film that has that. There's nothing inherently wrong with telling a story with a character like that, especially when this movie is all about why she is that way. I mean, it is not that, oh, wow, look, girls are like this and isn't that fun? No, this is a, it's a plot element. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that because of that reason. Yeah, I, I think it, it's a completely different thing when it's like someone's being quirky just because they want to be different yeah. versus they're doing weird things because their brain fundamentally works a different way than yours does. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't even really necessarily think she's a manic pixie dream girl. Uh, the downside here is that you get J.K. Simmons for way too short a period he's of time. so good, though. He, yeah, he's always great in everything he's in, and, and he's here. You're like, yes, J.K. Simmons. Oh, he's gone again. Uh, and that's a shame. Uh, Treat Williams plays the dad, and... and he, 
he doesn't really have much to do with it. And you know what? But you know the golden rule: treat Williams as you would want others to treat Williams. Ah, I see what you did there. That's true. But either way, we are in fact giving away giving away this film uh, i actually think if this sounds at all like something you're you're gonna enjoy i'm talking to you ladies listen up out there i think you're gonna have a good time with it i really did i found it completely charming ultimately by the end of it i think it's 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 a slight film but a, a nice film that's gonna make you feel good and uh yeah good stuff yeah and i still have not for the life of me thought of a giveaway prompt for this uh but i'm just gonna tell you guys uh just to let you know that's the way we do our giveaways is we do these prompts on twitter uh, for this one, you just, for both of these, actually, going to make sure you uh, follow us at one of us net on Twitter. And then for this one, I want you to tweet at us with, hmm, what should they tweet at us for this one? Don't ask me, man. It's your job. <laughs> Which you put on me five minutes ago. Why, uh, why Monkey is the best cat in the world. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> All right. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tweet at us with, um, to... <laughs> Sucks so hard. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> a name. Of, if this movie was the name of a barbecue restaurant, Barefoot in the Pork. <laughs> what are you doing? You just took the best one. Uh, that's the only. That's the only one that works. That's the only one that works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I want you to tweet at us with which actress in Hollywood would make the worst manic pixie dream girl on film. Ooh, good one. There, there, there. You have it. Uh, Selma Blair. <laughs> and then hashtag that one barefoot giveaway now the other giveaway we have of course is suspect and for that once again you're going to follow one of uh at one of us net on twitter and then i want you to tweet at us with your nerdiest heist did you knock over a truck full of uh you know first run arkham city action figures who knows whatever it is the big haul the big prize of your nerdy heist that's what i want to know i want to know what it is that you knocked off and you're going to hashtag that one with suspect giveaway, and we'll give away a copy of each one. That's very exciting. Open U.S. residents only. Sorry. Blah, 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 blah. Fine print. Blah, we blah, love blah, blah, the blah. rest of you. We just can't afford to send you packages. We just don't have the money to do <laughs> shipping out of the United States. Not but yet. that's our show. We did it. That's it. It's that's over. this week's show. Next that's week, over. we'll be back with parallel universes and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that's weird. We didn't push the button this week. Yeah, but I, I think I left it at the other house. I'm kind of okay with leaving those guys in, in their compartment for the day. Well, we'll see. They scare me, man. Yeah. You heard that other me? Yeah. He actually is much more charming and debonair. Well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> it sound like me. It's weird. Yeah. Well, maybe if you were born in Britain, you wouldn't uh, have such a miserable life. Yeah, because I don't drink enough now. <laughs> Anywho. They're, they're called pints there. I'm okay. getting one. Or 12. <laughs> Anywho, that's going to do it for the show. Once again, please follow us on Twitter at one of us net or the show at DigiNoiseCast. You can also follow us individually. I'm at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And you can like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. Become a subscriber. Use our Amazon links. All that good stuff. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're everywhere. You can't get away from us. You try to, but it's it's just completely futile because we are all over the internet. Put on the glasses and point the truth. Put them on. But until next week, I'm going to end the show as I always do by reminding you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. <laughs>